Hi everyone, I'm Neil Phillips. I'm a naturalist, wildlife photographer and podcaster. And I'm here at Flamborough to look for the seabirds and marine life. Well, as you can probably tell, it's going to be a bit of a different episode today. A couple of weeks ago, the good people from Zeiss sent me up to Flamborough to test out one of their new pairs of binoculars. And I went up there with a film crew, so there's going to be a bit of a short film, I guess you might call it, coming out soon. But let's go back to me at Flamborough Cliffs. And I'm trying out these Zeiss 8x32 Victory SF binoculars. Of course, in July, it's a bit quiet for birds. A lot of them have just finished breeding and are molting, so they've tucked themselves away and it's quite hard to see them. But an exception to that is on the cliffs, especially the rocky shores like this cliff here. There's lots of birds around this time of year. We're hoping to see some kittiwakes, some gulls, some auks, and my personal favourite, the fulmer. You know, always a good tick in my book on it. Makes a good day to see a fulmer. Flamborough, where we filmed, or Flamborough Head to give it its precise name, is on the Yorkshire coast between Filey and Bridlington. The head sticks out east into the North Sea, so it's a good place to see passing seabirds and migrant birds as they pass through, as well as nesting seabirds on the cliff itself, of course. The site is famous for the oldest lighthouse that is still standing, but it also has the so-called new lighthouse. And we filmed at this so-called new lighthouse at about 5am in the morning on the second day, but we were treated to an amazing sight of a rainbow forming right over the top. But I was there to test out these binoculars. Now I've used our equipment before, so I was more than happy to come up and play with these new Victory SFs when I was invited. I've used the binoculars, I've used the microscopes, always good optics. And that showed last night when we came here and the sun was just going down below the horizon and I was still getting great views through the binoculars. Now the reason we got up so early on that second day was because it was forecast to rain at 9am. And it rained and carried on raining and carried on raining. But at least I got to test out the weatherproofing on the binoculars, I guess. Which, for the record, was good. Right, we've been looking around Flamborough Cliffs this morning. We've had some wonderful seals just frolicking in the waves as the tide's coming in, which is rather nice. You can hear them hollowing. You might even be able to hear them hollering behind me right now. You couldn't quite hear them, but here's a recording I made separately. And down here on the cliffs, there's a colony of kittiwakes with youngsters. Most of them nearly fully grown with that lovely black stripe down the back of their wings. And yeah, it's been fantastic. And here's a bit of sound of those lovely kittiwakes. So the two main highlights of this trip were probably the kittiwakes and the seals. Now I want to cover seals in detail another time. So I think in this episode we'll concentrate on the kittiwakes. So the black-legged kittiwake, to give it its full name, or Rissa tridactyla for its Latin name, also has a couple of local British names, the Annette and the Tarok, although Tarok is usually referring to just young kittiwakes and sometimes used for juvenile terns too. Now, kittiwakes are one of the smaller gulls, they're only 40 centimetres long with a one meterish wingspan, and they only weigh half a kilo at most. Compare that to a herring gull, which is up to 60 centimetres long, and has a 1.5 metre wingspan, and weighs up to 1.5 kilos, that's two or three times more than the kittiwake. But the kittiwake does have a sort of similar colour scheme, at first glance at least. It's got the white body, the pale grey wings, and the yellow bill, like the herring gull. But it lacks the red spot on the bill, and of course the kittiwake's got black legs. They also have a distinctive call in which they're supposedly saying Kitty Wake, Kitty Wake. I'll play the call and let you judge for yourself. 
I can hear it personally, but I've heard other people go, huh? Kittywakes are the most marine of our goals, and usually can only be found on or near the sea, and of course cliffs nearby. Unlike oven goals like herring, common, and little backpack goals, which are quite often found inland, you just don't find that with kittywakes. Now of course they are found in Newcastle and Gateshead Quayside on the River Tyne, but the river's still tidal there, and that is the furthest they are found inland in the world. You can find kittywake colonies in most places there are sheer cliffs on the coasts around the UK, which is where they breed, arriving in February and hanging around till about August. But they spend the rest of the year out at sea, and in winter are pretty much living an oceanic existence, generally in the North Sea and the North Atlantic, with some British breeding birds even being found off the eastern seaboard of North America. Studies around the British Isles have shown they feed on small pelagic shoaling fish, these are things such as sand eels, sprats and young herring, which are all energy-rich species. But they also feed on some invertebrates like planktonic crustaceans, and in common with many other seabirds, they eat the discards from fishing boats. Kittywakes are the most numerous gull species in the world, and in the UK there's somewhere around 200,000 pairs breeding in the UK. But as I'll discuss later, those numbers are declining, sadly and due to this decline they have recently been red-listed, a classification reserved for very rare birds or those that are massively declining like the kittiwake. Now when it's breeding season the kittiwakes gather on sheer cliffs and form colonies that can vary from less than 10 pairs to tens of thousands. They've also been seen to nest on man-made structures like bridges, buildings and even oil platforms. They build a small cup-shaped nest out of seaweeds, grasses and floatsome, including unfortunately sometimes man-made plastic. And in this nest they lay two eggs. These are incubated by both the male and the female for 25 to 32 days or so. Then when the chicks hatch they're fed by the parents and take 33 to 54 days to fledge, with 21% of fledglings sadly failing to make it through their first year. A study carried out over four years on the Isle of May found that they started off the breeding season feeding their young on crustaceans, namely a type of krill, but then they moved on to fish like sand eels, which in fact make up the majority of their prey. Now, as you can imagine, nesting on a cliff is a potentially very dangerous thing to do, but of course they've evolved many adaptations to living in this somewhat extreme nesting environment. The chicks will almost always face into the cliff and avoid the edge as much as possible, other gold species tend to nest on the ground or roofs and f much flatter areas, shall we say. And when threatened, their chicks will run away. But of course, if a kittiwake did that, it would probably end up falling off the cliff. So they instead take the stay motionless approach when threatened and hope the predator doesn't see them. And when you're stuck on one tiny little ledge, you can imagine it could get messy very quickly. So the parents tend to take away any feces and leftover food and they also feed the chicks from their throat whereas other gold species will often just leave the food on the floor or roof or wherever they're nesting and let the chicks come and find it themselves. The adults also fly straight to the chick so it doesn't have to move around and risk falling off compared to other gulls which will sort of land somewhere nearby and call and let the chicks come to them. And finally when it comes to the nest as I mentioned it's that nice cup shape but that cup shape is a lot deeper than similar gull and other bird species that don't nest on ledges on the edge of a cliff. And to make sure it doesn't fall apart, all those bits of grass and seaweed, they cement it together with their poo, which when combined with a few other behavioural aspects, like being noisy when they're landing to warn the chick that they're coming in, combines together to make it 
a bit less dangerous nesting on the edge of a very tall steep cliff. During the nesting time they do maintain a territory but it literally is pretty much just where they nest but if another bird comes too close they will get a nasty peck from the adult. Once a chick's fledged it takes four years to mature to breeding age and each bird will live for typically 12 years but the record for a ringed bird is 28 years and 6 months so they can be quite long lived. 64% of pairs reform the next year to breed again and those that don't it's typically because the pair failed the last year and of course if one of them has died. When the kittiwakes are pairing up they tend to go with a bird of a similar age but the older females will often choose younger males. I'll let you make your own jokes. Those that stayed together usually started breeding earlier and had a much higher rate of success so it was better to stay together unless of course you'd failed the year before. As I mentioned earlier sadly kittiwake numbers are in decline. Now globally the species has thought to have declined 40% since 1970 and the UK is no exception with Scottish colonies seemingly hit the hardest. On Orkney and Shetland they've declined 87% since just the year 2000 and on St Kilda by 96% which is quite a catastrophic decline to put it mildly. A few factors may be behind this decline but the two main ones are thought to be overfishing and climate change. The sand eels that make up 90% of the prey in some populations are being industrially fished. Meanwhile the zooplankton that the sand eels feed on is being affected by climate change causing a drop in sand eel numbers. So when you combine the effect of both of these together that means less sand eels for the kittiwakes to feed on. Other birds like puffins also seem to be affected by this decline in sand eels. All these seabirds are being reduced to bringing in some very bony fish species called pipefish which are basically a stretched out relative of seahorses. And not only do they have a lot less nutritional value they are hard to digest and the chicks can even choke on them. And sadly we're affecting kittiwakes in yet another way. I mentioned earlier the colony in Newcastle and unfortunately it seems to be inevitable when wildlife comes into contact with humans there is conflict. The kittiwakes nest on the buildings there but they do little harm other than a bit of mess and as I've mentioned the adults do take away the poo and stuff most of the time but some of the businesses in the area have decided to put up netting to stop the nesting but it failed to work in some cases and the birds actually nested under the nets which meant some of these birds were getting stuck in the nets and starving to death because they couldn't escape and people couldn't rescue them because they're high up on a building. Of course, in some cases, the fire brigade heroically came out and saved them, but some they couldn't. And in the end, if you didn't have the net, you wouldn't have to use the fire brigade's time and resources. A big campaign, unsurprisingly, was launched online and pressure put on the businesses, and they did replace the netting, supposedly to make it safe for the birds, but there were reports of the birds getting under them still. And a similar thing happened again earlier this year at the BT Telephone Exchange in Suffolk. But after another campaign, and advice from the RSVB, BT, to their credit, did listen and they removed the netting and they allowed the kittiwakes to nest on the building and they've gone as far as saying they are providing more specially created nesting sites kittiwakes in Lowestoft. So, you know, there's a bit of a silver lining to all this stuff going on and although this situation in Newcastle is ongoing and lots of buildings do let them nest and there's even a tower that's been put up just for them to nest on in the harbour so not all doom and gloom. Right, let's get back to my day at Flamborough. So we first arrived in the evening and the light was fading fast. But it was a beautiful sunset. There are some photos of it on my social media. But of course, as the light levels drop, it's a bit of a test for binoculars and stuff. But the Zeiss Victory SF binoculars I was playing with did 
really well with the low light. I could easily pick out the San Martins flying around and got some really lovely views of the seals. The next day the rain was forecast to arrive at 9am so we got up at 4am and was there for 5am. But we were rewarded, there was a beautiful dawn sky and it just started to drizzle as we walked down past the lighthouse and as I've already mentioned we saw that lovely rainbow. But of course we had the place to ourselves as well so there was the corning kittiwakes and gulls and those bellowing seals, it was all rather lovely. So we got all that filming done, then we popped back to Bridlington to back up all the footage and stuff. But I went looking for the kittiwakes that nest in the town, and there was one row of about 10 kittiwakes, and they were almost in touching distance at head height, so that was quite cool. Got some nice photos of those. Some of you might have seen me trying out those Instagram reel things, and I've done a quick one of the kittiwakes there. We headed back to Flamber Cliffs, did a bit more wildlife watching, a bit more filming, but the weather got worse and worse. But the binoculars did alright, they're weatherproof, which is something I really like in my gear. And the coating on the front made it nice and easy to wipe the raindrops off. So, you know, thumbs up from me for that. But by midday, the bad weather had really set in. We're squeezing in one last bit of filming, and then we called it a day. But all in all, a good couple of days wildlife watching. It's usually pretty good up there, to be fair. Kitty wakes, gannets, shags, seals, you know, can't really go wrong with that sort of combination. But of course, I didn't see the albatross, which was a bit disappointing. And of course, almost inevitably, as we were driving home, word came through on social media, having been watching it the whole time we were up there and not heard anything, that the gannet had arrived at Bempton. That's how it goes sometimes. But I just want to say thank you to Zeiss and the team I went up with for taking me up there. It was a joy to work with you all. And that's where the podcast ended originally. Stop the press, or some other similar overused cheesy phrase there's a final twist to this story i went back up to yorkshire a few weeks later to visit a good wildlife photographer friend of mine and the first place we visited was bempton which is still on the flamber cliffs but a bit further north from where i filmed with zeiss when we arrived the albatross hadn't been seen for a week and the general opinion was it must have left the area we headed down to staple nuke platform which is where it had been seen the most over the last month or so And when we got there, we were told it had actually been seen earlier that morning and realised that probably we should have got up a bit earlier. So we hung around for a couple of hours, but there was no sign, so we headed back to the centre for lunch about 11.30. And at 12, we were sitting there eating our lunch, and of course, a volunteer announced they had come back. So a quick walk back, and of course, it was a case of, you should have been here five minutes ago. But we waited around, and after an hour, my friend Dave shouted, Albatross! And there it was. A big black bird, about the size of a gannet, but with longer, thinner wings, and that distinctive black on the upper side of those wings too. And just like the albatrosses in all those blue chip wildlife programs with David Atterburn narrating, it was soaring, wings outstretched, just above the waves. What a sight to see. I never thought I'd see an albatross, let alone in the UK. Albert Ross, as he's become known, although that name is a bit controversial because another albatross that was hanging around the UK a few decades ago was also called Albert Ross. And of course, we don't know if it's male or female. In fact, my friend Dave has suggested we call it Molly, because Molly Mork is another name for albatross. But whatever name you decide to call it, it is a black-browed albatross. Not black-brown, as I've been calling it for the last two weeks. And this is a species that is normally found in the southern oceans, between South Africa and the southern halves of Australia and South America. It feeds on isolated islands with no predators, such as the Falklands and South Georgia. Albatrosses are not normally found in the Northern Hemisphere, but the black-browed albatross does seem to be the one that most frequently ends up here in the Northern Atlantic, with at least 20 sightings off the east coast of America and 33 sightings from the UK. The albatrosses belong to the Procellariforms, 
or tube noses, which includes species more normally found off our coasts, such as fulmers and petrels. The name black-browed albatross comes from the black eye stripe that's just over its eye, like an eyebrow. Like most albatrosses, they're pretty big birds. They're up to 88 centimetres long, up to 4 kilo in weight, and have a wingspan of up to 2.3 metres. So they're a bit shorter than a gannet, but they're a kilo heavier and have a much bigger wingspan. Studies on their diet in their usual range show krill makes up the bulk of their prey along with fish and squid but with some records of them eating lampreys as well. Now this particular albatross has a bit of a history in the birding world. In 2014 what is thought to be the same bird was spotted in the North Sea for the first time around a gannet colony on a German island called Heligoland and in the following years made a few visits there as it wandered around the North and Baltic Sea. This wandering did include some visits to the UK it turned up bizarrely at the Minsmere RSPB Reserve in 2015, which is a big scrape, not a cliff, and on the Fair Isle in Shetland in 2016. It also spent a fair bit of time on the German island of Silt, where it hung around with another big white bird, the swans that were on the island, although the swans didn't seem too happy to have it around, and some twitchers from the UK actually travelled to the island just to see it, as it would hang around for a few days there. But in 2017, it was spotted by a 12-year-old at Bempton, and I keep reading conflicting things whether it was seen again before 2020 when it turned up for two days in July. Lots of people were hoping it was going to come back this year, but in April it was spotted off the coast of Denmark, and as it was flying round, it was seen to be attacked by a number of white-tailed sea eagles and then not seen again, so it was believed to have been killed. But thankfully, it obviously did survive, and much to everyone's surprise, it turned up again this year at Bempton. Turning up in late June and basically being seen nearly every day up until a week before I went up there. It's put on quite a show to be fair. And later on the Friday, the first day we went to Bempton, it did come back and put on a little show for us doing a few loops. It was quite low down below us on the top of the cliff, but you know, you can't uh, moan about views of an albatross when you're in the UK, especially when it's a Friday the 13th, which wasn't quite so unlucky for us. The next day we went up on the North York Moors, which was unsurprisingly pretty quiet, and thought we'd have another go at Bempton. We went up to the North End Reserve, which is the opposite end to where the albatross was seen, to go and enjoy the gannets, and it was pretty quiet up that end for obvious reasons. Everyone was looking for the albatross that we'd seen on the Friday. But after lunch, we thought we'd brave the small crowd that was there and started heading down to Staple Nuke platform. But as we did, the wind had started to change direction and started blowing inshore, and this meant the gannets were soaring above the cliffs on the updraft giving some fantastic photo opportunities, so I stopped before I got to the platform while my friend Dave kept going down. After about 10 minutes, I got a phone call. Albatross was shown again. So I started walking down the hill, and about halfway down, I looked to my left, and who was soaring above the cliffs with the gannets? Right in front of me, at eye level, was the albatross. So I fired off lots of shots. I think I actually filled the buffer for the first time on my camera and got some lovely close-ups of it. You can clearly see the beautiful colours on the beak and the fabulous neat facial markings and eyebrow. The sort of shot that people comment with words like jammy followed by a rude word on social media. So fair to say it was another successful trip. And now this really is the end of this episode. Do keep your eye out on Zeiss's social media for that video that we recorded. I'll be sharing it. They might also be sharing some photos from behind the scenes and stuff like that. It'll be well worth checking out. And that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Big thanks to all of you that have left reviews and a massive thanks to all of you that's bought a coffee for us. But until next time, goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, all one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. 
and like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UK Wildlife Pod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Neil Phillips. The music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.